I've treated hundreds of patients and trained thousands of healthcare professionals over my 15-year career. And one thing I've learned through that experience is that most people are really confused about supplements, or they lack a clear strategy or plan for how to use supplements to improve their health. That's why I created Adapt Naturals. It's a supplement line designed to add back in what the modern world has squeezed out and help you feel and perform your best. Our ancestors' diets were rich in the essential vitamins and minerals and phytonutrients we need for optimal function. But today, thanks to declining soil quality, a growing toxic burden, and other challenges in the modern world, most of us are not getting enough of these critical nutrients. I formulated Adapt Naturals using the principles of evolutionary biology and modern research to fill the nutrient gaps that we face today and replicate the nutrient intakes found in an optimal ancestral diet. Our flagship offering is called the Core Plus Bundle, a daily stack of five products that gives you everything you need each day, from essential vitamins and minerals like B12, folate, magnesium, and vitamin D, to phytonutrients like bioflavonoids, carotenoids, and beta-glucans. You can also order the products in the bundle separately if that works better for your needs. The Adapt Naturals products are made from the highest quality, food-based, or bioidentical ingredients. From cellular and immune health, to brain and nervous system support, to blood sugar and heart health, we've got you covered. Your supplement cupboard is about to get a lot smaller. We also created an app called Core Reset to help you get your nutrition, sleep, movement, and stress management dialed in. Because no matter how good our supplements are, and they are really good, you can't supplement yourself out of a bad diet and lifestyle. The best part is that you get this app at no additional cost when you order the Core Plus bundle. Head over to adaptnaturals.com, that's A-D-A-P-T naturals.com, to learn more and start feeling and performing your best. Hey everybody, Chris Kresser here. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. One of the issues that I've written and spoken about most in the course of my career over the last 15 years is the harm that is caused by industrial seed oils in the diet. Uh, these oils oxidize and become rancid and they contribute to everything from an increased risk of cancer to cardiovascular disease to autoimmune conditions to inflammatory bowel disease and IBS to asthma, allergies, and so many other chronic conditions that we suffer from today. Unfortunately, industrial seed oils are now the third most commonly consumed food in the world behind wheat and rice, and they comprise up to 20% of calories in the American diet, it's for some people even higher because of the amount of processed and refined food consumption and the fact that these oils are in basically every food that comes in a bag or a box or that is cooked in a restaurant. This problem has not gotten any better uh, over the past 15 years since I've been doing this work. And certainly there's been some positive trends in terms of uh, you know, uh, avocado oil and olive oil becoming more, more commonly used, um, and other types of cooking fats that are more stable at higher temperatures. But these foods have problems of their own. They're not really scalable because they only grow in certain regions of the world. They have a pretty significant environmental impact because they're resource intensive to grow and uh, they don't have particularly high smoke points or stability when, when cooked at higher temperatures. So this is a, an issue that I've been thinking a lot about and pursuing solutions to for many, many years. And 
a, a couple of years ago, I was contacted by Jeff Nobbs, who has founded a company called Zero Acre Farms. This is a food startup that is on a mission to give the world an oil change, so to speak. And they have created a new product called Cultured Oil. It's an entirely new type of oil that I'll tell you about in this show that is extremely high in monounsaturated fat, uh, has a very high smoke point, very high oxidative stability, which means it's, it's not likely to oxidize when you cook with it, and a dramatically lower environmental impact than any of the other oils that are commonly used today. So this is a kind of once in a generation thing here uh, where it has the potential to be truly game changing and have a dramatic impact on the global burden of chronic disease. Uh, I joined the advisory board of this company because I, I deeply believe in their mission and I, I think that this is a public health problem that absolutely needs to be solved. And this is the first solution that I've come across in 15 years that I think is, is viable. So I'm really excited to welcome Jeff as my guest. Uh, we're going to talk all about industrial seed oils, how we came to this point where they comprise such a large percentage of calories uh, in the U.S. and worldwide, the harms that they cause, including some new research that's been published to that end, uh, and then what Zero Acre Farms is doing about it uh, and, and this first product that they're releasing, Cultured Oil. So um, this is one of my favorite shows that I've recorded recently. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And without any further delay, let's dive in. Jeff, pleasure to have you on the show. I've really been looking forward to this. Hey, Chris. Yeah, me too. And thanks for having me on. So vegetable oil, industrial seed oil. Um, this is, you know, in some ways, how I got my start was uh, talking about the risks of these um, highly refined products in the food supply, which have become ubiquitous, as we're going to talk about. Um, but let's just dive right in there because this is really the problem that Zero Acre Farms was created to solve. And it's, uh, it was a problem 15 years ago when I started doing this work, and it's still a problem. It's arguably a bigger problem. And, you know, I think a lot of the listeners are somewhat familiar, but the statistics always shock me, even when I, even though I'm super familiar with them, I've seen them a million times, but. Uh, it's not bad to just review the facts. So let's start there. Like, you know, first of all, how, how are vegetable oils and industrial seed oils defined for those that are less familiar? How common have they become in the food supply and what's the problem? That is a great place to start. And as you point out, uh, you know, those of us who have been in the, in the ancestral health space or, you know, better for you food, thinking about why people get sick, um, not much has changed in the world of vegetable oils since, you know, in, in the last 10 to 15 years, um, which, which, you know, which is part of the reason that, um, that zero acre farms exists. And so what is that problem? What are vegetable oils, um, vegetable oils or, or seed oils, as they're often called refer to oils that are pressed from seeds and grains, uh, like canola oil, soybean oil, rice bran oil, safflower oil, grapeseed oil, uh, cottonseed oil, peanut oil, the list goes on and on. We figured out ways to press oil from all sorts of different seeds and grains and, and very, very tiny amounts in each seed. But when you combine a lot of these seeds and grains together, it, it results in a lot of oil. And now we're eating that oil. So vegetable oils are extremely prevalent. They're 
And these are some of the, the stats I'm sure that you're referring to where, you know, even if you know, these things are bad and they're everywhere, when you, when you hear the numbers, it's, it's pretty crazy. Um, about a fifth of all calories we eat are from vegetable oils. And if you go to the supermarket and you start turning over packages of food, you start to understand why when you're seeing soybean oil, sunflower oil, safflower oil, canola oil as the first, second, or third ingredient, you know, sometimes you'll even so they see the ingredient list that say canola and or sunflower and or safflower, you know, pr producers are just like, yeah, we don't really care what we're putting in, you know, any of these will work. So that's why they list all of them. Uh, and several years ago, when, when I started digging into the stats behind this and, and figuring out, you know, what to do about it from a business standpoint, um, some of the numbers that, that we found were, um, were pretty eye-opening. So uh, vegetable oil is now the most consumed food in the world after rice and wheat. And it, it has this disproportionate impact on our health, of course, which we'll talk about, and also on the environment. Um, and about a, a third, just, just under a third of global croplands are devoted to vegetable oil crops, which creates all these downstream effects. So, um, you know, you've talked about the details, uh, you know, you've written about the details in, in books and in blog posts and, and talked about it on podcasts, but in a nutshell, it's vegetable oils or, or seed oils are very high in a particular type of fatty acid called linoleic acid, which is an omega-6 polyunsaturated fat. And humans have never before consumed significant quantities of this fatty acid. And now it makes up a significant percentage of all calories we eat. All foods have this fatty acid in it for the most part, but usually as one or 2% of calories. In the case of vegetable oils, seed oils, it's as high as 50 to 75% of those calories are just from this one fatty acid. And that fatty acid turns into all sorts of other compounds when it oxidizes, it bioaccumulates in our bodies, it bioaccumulates in uh, the food we eat, like in, in chickens and pigs, uh, and it leads to all sorts of health issues. And then on the environmental side of things, uh, all this land that we're dedicating to growing these crops, they, it, it leads to deforestation and ultimately to uh, excess greenhouse gas emissions and you know, ultimately climate change. So th th that's sort of what vegetable oils are and the issue with them in a nutshell. So let's break this down a little bit because there are lots of different directions we, we can go and we will. Um, one of the issues with seed oils is the linoleic acid content, the fatty acid composition, as you pointed out. And we'll talk a, a little bit about why that's problematic and how that might be different from linole you know, or what the differences may be in getting you know, a high amount of linoleic acid from industrial seed oils versus eating some avocados. Uh, I'd like to talk about that a little bit. But another issue with seed oils that I'm uh, even more aware of at this point, because I'm so focused on nutrient deficiency as a public health issue, is that seed oils don't have much of anything else aside from linoleic acid. You know, it would be one thing if people were consuming massive amounts of these and they were loaded with essential vitamins and minerals and phytonutrients and things like that. And they also happen to have, you know, a high amount of linoleic acid. Yeah, we'd still have to deal with that problem. But uh, the fact is that that's pretty much all they have is linoleic acid and not really much, you know, some have some vitamin E, but beyond that, they're just almost devoid of nutrients. Yeah. And the vitamin E really is just there to, you know, uh, act as an antioxidant to all the easily oxidized linoleic acid that's in the oil. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, you don't really need the vitamin E, uh, except for, to prevent that oxidation. It doesn't seem to do much, you know, like vitamin E supplementation doesn't seem to lead to a bunch of 
you know, reducing all the oxidation in your body, for example. Uh, certainly not tocopherols. And tocopherols have been associated with an increase in the risk of cancer and heart disease when supplementing with like alpha tocopherol at high doses. So tocotrienols is a whole nother story, but um, we'll leave that for another time. Certainly the vitamin E in there is not um, excusing any of the nutritional deficiencies in those in those oils. So those are, you know, probably two of the main problems. Let's let's talk a little bit about linoleic acid and industrial seed oils and how that might differ a little bit from, you know, eating nuts and avocados. Like what do you see as the as the biggest difference uh, in terms of the impact of those foods? Yeah, you, I mean you said it when it comes to nutrient density. Also, I want to be clear that if we could choose, would we rather have the soybean oil come with some tocopherols and vitamin E or not? I think we would because it, you know it's it's helping prevent oxidation in that bottle of oil before it even ends up in your cabinet or in your frying pan or in your body. Um, but yeah, like mega doses of tocopherols and vitamin E, um, you're not gonna yeah you, you know you're not gonna you're not gonna just remove the oxidation. Our bodies are a bit more complicated than that. First and foremost, the difference between getting your omega six fats, which seem to be essential in an extremely small amount. There's some interesting research showing that maybe they aren't essential at all, but you know, certainly uh, we're not concerned about like one or 2% of calories coming from linoleic acid. Cause you'd get that just from eating beef and coconuts. Um, but foods that are a bit higher in linoleic acid, like nuts and avocados, you'd have to just, you'd have to eat a lot of nuts and avocados to get the amount of these omega-6 fats, linoleic acid that are found in oil, um, like an impossibly large amount. So just to get the uh, amount of linoleic acid and let's say a few tablespoons of sunflower oil that's used to, you know, cook your burger and French fries or um, some corn oil that's used to cook your enchiladas if you go out to eat, you know, you'd have to eat like dozens of avocados um, or just handfuls and handfuls and handfuls of nuts. And I I think it, it may be possible with nuts if you're, if you're, you know, eating like multiple handfuls of almonds at every meal that, that actually may result in kind of an, an omega-6 excess, but it's, right. it's a whole and that food would have matrix. Been extremely difficult to do in an ancestral environment, right? You know, you, that's a lot of work <laughs> cracking those nuts or, or collecting those nuts. It's easy. Now you go to Trader Joe's or Costco or whatever, you get a huge bag and you're just snacking on them all day, which is, you know, I have, uh, definitely written about that in the past that like nuts are, are great, but you can overdo it. You definitely can uh, from a number of different perspectives. So yeah, I mean, what you're yeah. saying is like, if, if we look at the ancestral food template, it would have been almost impossible to get the levels of linoleic acid that we can quite easily get today from just eating processed and refined foods. I think the other thing that strikes me is that, and you alluded to this before, is that the industrial seed oils in the food supply are much more likely to become oxidized and damaged because of the way, you know, the food, even just by the nature of the foods that they're in there, you know, if you pop a donut in a deep fryer, um, with that kind of oil, you, that's, uh, you know, just a, a recipe for oxidation. Whereas an avocado, you know, often, especially if you're just eating it raw and you're putting it on a salad that you're, you're not exposing it to those high temperatures and other factors that will lead to oxidation. Yeah. And, and the same goes for omega-3 fats, um, uh, you know, fish oils, high omega-3, DHA, EPA oils, uh, you know, and there's been a number uh, of, of research studies on this. When you have something like a, a you know, wild caught 
king salmon or something and you're, and you're baking that at 350 or 400 degrees, it is very different than deep frying fish oil at 400 degrees. Fish oil is about the last thing you'd want to you know, use for deep frying. It would oxidize extremely quickly because of all of those double bonds. It would turn rancid. It, it's why fish that's gone bad smells so bad. Our body's saying, stay away from this. It is so oxidized. But when those delicate omega-3 fats are uh, contained within the flesh of a fish and all the natural antioxidants that, you know, basically the fish evolved to prevent oxidation in, in those delicate omega-3 fats, um, that's very, very different. And so it's the same with eating avocados and olives and, uh, you know, tofu and soy and nuts versus eating the, the extracted oil from those foods. Um, you know, you, you end up, you end up getting the amount of oil that would be impossible to actually consume if you're eating whole foods. And th there's, there is no need for oil in our diet. You know, we, we would not be deficient in any nutrient if we just snapped our fingers and, uh, and all the edible oil in the world disappeared, but it's just not realistic. You know, pe people love their, their deep fried food and, and salad dressings and searing their eggs and, and fat and all that. And would it be great if everyone just got their, their fats from, you know, regenerative agriculture and, and avocados and coconuts? Sure. That'd be great. Um, you know, is it going to happen anytime soon? Probably not. Yeah. Not the world we're living in at this point. And, um, but I think that's a, it's an important, uh, consideration when you look at, you know, I've always argued that we're not necessarily looking at the ancestral template of foods so that we can replicate it exactly. We're looking at it as a way of determining, of making hypotheses for what might be beneficial and what might be harmful. And if we, in this case, look and say, oh, well, historically, our ancestors only got a small percentage of calories from linoleic acid and omega-6 and typically the ratio was pretty close to the you know what they got from omega-3s you know there's it differed depending on what part of the world you were uh, looking at you know high seafood consumers it would have been closer to one to one but in other parts it might have been four to one in favor of linoleic acid to omega-3 but but then if if you look at today like you said when now it's the third most commonly consumed food and we're talking about double digit percentages of calories, that's a red flag right now to, you know, right there to investigate. Like, is this something, is this a change that is just, you know, not nothing to worry about? Like, hey, it's just part of the modern lifestyle and, you know, we can tolerate that. Or is this an alarming thing that we need to, to, to really address? And of course it's, it's the latter in this case. So we know that Linoleic acid is way far out of proportion. We know that uh, these oils are devoid of nutrients. But what about just the foods that they tend to show up in? <laughs> Above and beyond the harms of the oils themselves, what about the foods that they come as a part of? Yeah, and, and um, they're primarily consumed in the form of you know French fries, fried chicken, chicken nuggets, potato chips, packaged foods. You know, I, I always say as a good rule of thumb, as just kind of a starting point, if you just cut out vegetable oils, refined flours and refined sugars, you're probably like 80% of the way there because what you're replacing those foods with almost by definition will be more nutrient dense if they don't contain those things. And there's been a, a lot of attention paid to, you know, refined sugars, high fructose corn syrup, that sort of thing. Also a lot of attention paid to 
gluten-free diets and, and, you know, not having such high carb diets and going keto and that sort of thing. I think vegetable oils are kind of the, you know, the, the, the missing third piece there. You could cut, you could not have much sugar and be on a low carb diet, but if you're replacing all those calories with a bunch of vegetable oils, there are, there are going to be issues. And then when you're eating those oils that come in, well, let's start with packaged foods. When, when they come in packaged foods, it, it's often the vegetable oils themselves that dictate the shelf life of the product. So if you get a bag of potato chips, it's not the potatoes going bad, it's the vegetable oil going rancid. And then, you know, Frito-Lay needing to say, okay, this has a six month uh, shelf life. And it's because they oxidize so easily. And that same oxidation happens further up the supply chain too. So if you, if you eat a, you know, cook a soybean and eat a soybean, um, there's a lot in that soybean that's protecting, you know, in that whole food matrix that's protecting the soy oil from oxidizing. Then when you press that soybean or chemically extract the oil from it and go on to refine that soybean oil, you're already creating lots of oxidative products. And then when you deep fry potato chips or deep fry French fries, you know, you're, you're further accelerating that oxidation and then you put it in your body. The soybean oil itself would also oxidize in your body because it's so high in omega-6 fats. But with all this processing before you put it into food, all those omega-6 fats are, are already well on their way to oxidizing. Yeah, that's the, and, and to me, that's one of the biggest differences between eating, you know, omega-6 in the form of nuts and avocados versus eating them in, in these seed oils. You can smell the rancidity of omega-6s too. I mean, that's, for anyone's driven by like a, you know, fast food type of restaurant or you're in the back alley and you, you smell that smell or, or how about like a biodiesel car, <laughs> you know, like that, that has a pretty distinct smell. It's burning vegetable oil and it, and it's, you, you really, it smells like French fries. It smells like uh, fried food from a fast food restaurant. And that's exactly what you're tuning into there. So it's like our body has a kind of natural aversion, I think, to that smell because we know that it's something that's harmful. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the research be behind industrial seed oil consumption and chronic disease. So this is a little bit newer. I mean, these seed oils have been around for, you know, and in use in the food supply for well over 100 years, but it's only been the last, you know, two, three decades, maybe, especially the last two decades that we've seen more research looking at the impact of these oils on human health. And Interestingly, a lot of that research actually happened in the 20th century, in the 1960s and 1970s, um, but it didn't fit with the zeitgeist, with the with the common thinking of you know the effect of polyunsaturated fats at the time. So it, it wasn't released until in the last 10 years, when um, maybe a mutual hero of ours, Christopher Ramsden, mm -hmm. published this research, you know, across multiple studies like the Minnesota Corn Air Experiment and the Sydney Diet Heart Heart Study. Yeah, and and Chris, frankly, a lot of your work on chronic disease and and what you wrote in unconventional medicine, that, that really opened up my eyes to a lot of the statistics of where we are in our world and in our country. Um, and I mean, the numbers here are just staggering. I mean, you wrote a whole book on it, so I won't go into and regurgitate all the, all the details from that book, but it's incredible and, and depressing. And, uh, and, and it's, you know, it has a massive impact on, on, you know, how healthy we are has a massive impact, of course, on how we feel and how we look and how we perform, but also just on things like our healthcare costs and, money we put into our healthcare system is not money we can put into other aspects of, of adding value and, um, you know, improving well-being in our society. And I, I think vegetable oils are a lead domino in this, if, if the research is any indication. You know, there are a number of ways to look at, is this food good? We talked about looking at it through the lens of an evolutionary uh, precedent. If humans have never before done this thing, it's at least worth raising an eyebrow at and, and looking into. 
And there's no, there's no human society on earth that's healthy, that consumes seed oils. Similarly, there's no society that is sick that doesn't consume seed oils. Now that's just correlation. That's not causation, but you know, it's definitely worth shining a light on that. And you can also look at it from a, a more, you know, more specifically in the U.S., vegetable oil consumption is the one major food that has increased in line with increasing rates of chronic disease. Chronic disease has gone up uh, significantly you know, for the last 100 years or so when, when vegetable oil was introduced. There are other things, of course, that cause disease, you know, smoking, alcohol consumption, sitting on your butt all day and never moving, um, eating a ton of sugar. But you know, these things have gotten better, have gotten worse over the years, while chronic disease rates have, have still um, been climbing. And so that points a big finger at vegetable oil. And for the sake of time, instead of going into all the RCTs that, you know, that, that show vegetable oils are bad, and there are a number of them, the, the one that stands out to me is the Sydney Diet Heart Study, um, because it, it was a randomized controlled trial, meaning you know, the only difference between the groups that were participating in this trial was the consumption of seed oil. Uh, and I believe it was sunflower oil in that one. It was a you know, high omega-6, high linoleic acid oil, sunflower And the group consuming more seed oils had a 62% chance, 62% higher chance of of death, of all-cause mortality. And that's in line with the things that we all know we should be doing less of, but, um, you know, there's no controversy around like heavy smoking and physical inactivity, heavy drinking, that 62% number higher risk of death is is in line with with those. Um, And then a number of other studies that show you know, both randomized controlled trials, animal studies, and a whole host of other studies uh, that show, you know, it's easier to gain weight when you're consuming more linoleic acid and vegetable oils, uh, higher rates of heart disease. Uh, people who have more arterial plaque tend to consume more linoleic acid, you know, diabetes, cancer. Uh, the, the list goes on when it comes to what's happening inside our body when we consume all this oxidized and, uh, you know, even not oxidized linoleic acid. Yeah. It's, it's really kind of shocking when you dig into the research. Uh, I have an article on my site called How Industrial Seed Oils Are Making Us Sick. It was a really deep dive on this subject. We'll put, it in, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, we'll, I'll review some of the just, I mean, it would take four episodes to go through <laughs> this in detail. So that's the value of an article versus a podcast. But I want to touch on some of the the categories of conditions that uh, industrial seed oils have been associated with, starting with cardiovascular disease, which you already mentioned, the Sydney Diet Heart Study. Um, there's another, there's a really interesting theory that's more recent. Uh, it's from a researcher named James D. Nicolantonio, I think is yep. his name. D. Nicolantonio. Yep. Yeah, I always have trouble pronouncing his name. <laughs> um, but it, he, it, it's called the oxidized linoleic acid theory of heart disease that links the consumption of linoleic acid-rich seed oils with cardiovascular disease. And the theory is basically three parts. So part one is the linoleic acid we get from seed oils gets incorporated into uh, lipoproteins in our blood. And because linoleic acid is so unstable, that increases the likelihood of those lipoproteins oxidizing. And then oxidized lipoproteins are unable to be recognized by the various receptors throughout the body that would, you know, latch onto those lipoproteins. And instead, uh, they activate macrophages, which initiates the process of atherosclerosis. So foam cell formation, and then, you know, damage to the endothelial lining and the, all of the telltale signs of 
uh, myocardial infarction or, you know, eventually leading to heart attack. So it's a pretty fascinating theory. Um, I think there's a lot of mechanistic evidence to support it. And if, if it's true, we're in deep trouble, right? Because this is like these oils, as we've talked about, have become ubiquitous. Heart disease is still the number one cause of death in this country and climbing worldwide. And th th this could be a primary driver of heart disease. There's another theory suggests that uh, particularly with canola and soybean oils contribute to cardiovascular disease by inhibiting a, a, a process that is vitamin K2 dependent that's essential for cardiovascular health and that these oils actually inter interfere with K2 dependent enzymes. And then that causes a whole cascade of events that increase the risk of heart disease. So that's, that's just for one condition, you know, cardiovascular disease, but there's research linking seed oil consumption to a higher risk of asthma, higher risk of autoimmune disease, all kinds of problems with, um, mental and behavioral health, uh, higher risk of depression, anxiety, cognitive decline, dementia, canola oil consumption has been linked to worsened memory and improved impaired learning ability and Alzheimer's disease. There's a ton of research linking seed oil consumption to diabetes, so diabetes and obesity. We know diets high in soybean oil increase obesity, insulin resistance, fatty liver disease, there's a, a, a whole bunch, actually I have a whole separate article on, on this link just between seed oils and inflammatory bowel disease and irritable bowel syndrome. Um, so one study found that mice that were fed a diet high in omega-6 from corn oil experienced increases in pro-inflammatory gut bacteria. And that like favored the development of gastrointestinal, all kinds of different gastrointestinal pathologies. And then women with IBS have shown significantly elevated levels of, of arachidonic acid, which is a, a sort of conversion, you know, what, what linoleic acid sometimes gets converted to in, in the chain of um, fatty acid conversion in the body. So, there, you know, I could go on. There's studies linking it to inflammation and fertility, macular degeneration, osteoarthritis. And I'd encourage you to check out the, my article if you're interested in this topic uh, the list, uh, for anyone who's listening because it, there, there's just now an overwhelming amount of research on this topic. And, and if you need any convincing at all uh, about why we, sh we should be reducing our intake of these oils, that article is a really good place to start. Paleo Valley's beef sticks are definitely one of my favorite snacks. They're unlike anything else on the market. They're made from 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef and organic spices, and they are naturally fermented, which gives them this really amazing flavor. In fact, they were recently voted in Paleo Magazine as one of the top snacks of the year. One reason I love Paleo Valley is that they're committed to making the highest quality whole food products that are free of junk ingredients. They're compact and easy to take on the go, especially when I'm out in the mountains and away from civilization. Go to paleovalley.com slash Chris and use the code Cresser15 to get 15% off. I've been a huge fan of Thrive Market since they launched eight years ago. I love having my favorite healthy products shipped right to my door at a fraction of the price I'd pay elsewhere. I use Thrive to order not only pantry staples like coconut milk, dark chocolate, and collagen peptides, but also toxin-free personal and household products. Thrive makes it really easy to find what you're looking for, whether that's paleo, 
low-carb or keto, or gluten-free. You can filter by more than 90 values and lifestyles to find what works for you. I also love Thrive's values as a company. They offer carbon-neutral shipping, and when you become a Thrive member, you sponsor a family in need. Join Thrive Market today and get $80 in free groceries. That's thrivemarket.com slash revolutionhealth, all one word, to get $80 in free groceries. That's thrivemarket.com slash revolutionhealth. But Jeff, there was something that you mentioned a while back on one of our calls that I would love to cover here, uh, which I haven't covered, which is the impact that these seed oils have on our appetite. And uh, I think you even said something like, they give us munchies in the same way that smoking marijuana does. So <laughs> that's something I had never heard before. So tell us about that. And I'm, I'm very tempted, Chris, to want to double down on everything you just said and like spend the next half hour talking about uh, more about oxidized linoleic acid or oxidized LDL um, and, you know, what's happening mechanistically, but I'll have to refrain. Maybe we can save that for, for another time. And um, like you said, you know, you, you've written about it. Um, but yeah, the, the connection between linoleic acid and weight gain is, is pretty fascinating. Um, and as much as it sounds like a, you know, like a Buzzfeed uh, uh, headline or something like that, um, you know, it, it, it's true. It's the same mechanism when it comes to, the the THC in marijuana that gives us the munchies and the endocannabinoids our bodies produce when we consume linoleic acid. So here's how it works. Um, you know, everyone's heard of THC giving us the munchies. It's actually an FDA pr uh, approved prescription drug to stimulate appetite because it works so well. And it, it's only been pretty recently, like in the last decade or two, that we've really understood why that's happening. And what happens is we, we have these receptors in our, in our brains and in our intestinal tract called CB1 receptors. When we consume THC, it activates these CB1 receptors and those stimulate appetite and, and lead to increased hunger. Uh, you know, THC does a bunch of other things in our body, of course, but, but that's uh, one, of the, one of the key things that it does. And uh, THC isn't the only thing that activates CB1. THC is a cannabinoid. There are also endocannabinoids, meaning they're made inside our body. And the primary endocannabinoids are 2-AG and AEA. Um, those are acronyms for much longer names, but we'll, we'll stick with those. And 2-AG and AEA can also activate CB1 and cause hunger. This is not controversial. This has been shown, you know, shown in a number of studies. And th these are made in our bodies from one source and one source only, omega-6 fats. That, that is the only source of, um, of these endocannabinoids. And that omega-6 fat is arachidonic acid, which is a downstream product of linoleic acid. And so there have not been randomized controlled trials yet on specifically studying these, this endocannabinoid production from increased linoleic acid, but there have been very clear studies, randomized controlled trials done in other mammals, uh, specifically in, in rats. And researchers found that when you take two, two groups of rats and everything in their diets is the same, except one group consumes more linoleic acid. These researchers measured the, the brain activity of these, of these rats and found that the, the rats that consume more linoleic acid had more 2-AG and AEA, which are those appetite-stimulating hormones that, that trigger CB1. And as a result, the rats ate more and they gained more weight. And th this has been also shown in a number of other ways. For example, uh, there was a drug in, introduced in the early 2000s called Ramonabant, and Ramonabant was called a, a wonder drug, a, a magical cure to weight gain. 
and uh, ramonabant worked by blocking CB1 receptor activity. And so with, without, uh, by, by blocking the CB1 receptor, those endocannabinoids that we get from omega-6 fats like AEA and 2-AG were not able to stimulate um, the CB1 receptor. And as a result, people could eat what they wanted and uh, they, their body correctly gave them satiety signals and you know, they stopped eating and, and they didn't gain weight. Um, th there's, there's also you know, another pathway we can look at, which is bariatric surgery. Uh, this is sort of a, a last result, but something that, you know, a lot of patients that are struggling with obesity will do to, to, to lose weight and ideally keep it off. And it's, uh, it's very successful. It's not without its risks, but the majority of people lose, um, 50% of their weight or more. And one of the ways it works is it, it through gastric bypass, it literally cuts out the part of your stomach that is rich in these CB1 receptors and literally bypasses that part of your digestive tract. Um, so it was never clear exactly why gastric bypass worked, um, but it seems like that's a major reason. And uh, in, in researchers uh, did a study to kind of find out why ga gastric bypass actually worked and found that through drugs, when they blocked the CB1 receptor, gastric bypass did not offer any additional benefits. Mm. So it's clearly the activity of the CB1 receptor that's at the center of, you know, or plays a big role in weight gain and obesity. And so we do not want to activate this through endocannabinoids. So the, the fewer omega-6 fats we eat, the less we'll activate this, this appetite-stimulating CB1 receptor. Well, it's really interesting because it could be a, a, another reason why it's so easy to overeat these kinds of foods like potato chips and French fries and things like that. You know, you hear that the sort of common wisdom is that's because they're salty and fatty and crunchy and that they're activating, you know, certainly humans do have a taste for those types of foods. They activate the hedonic pathways, but this is a whole nother mechanism that could explain why we have a tendency to, to overeat these foods. And Pringles was right when they said, bet, bet you can't just eat one, right? <laughs> they, they had, they had some science behind that bet. It sounds like. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it creates this vicious cycle where the foods you eat that are high in seed oils uh, create the munchies and create, uh, you know, increased appetite for those very same foods that are That's salty right. and crunchy and fatty. And, and, uh, and then you eat even more. Yeah. So, uh, we'll put some more links. Like, as you said, I've been writing about this for years. And so, you know, there's so much to cover, but I want to make sure we have time to touch on some of the other important issues. So we'll drop some links in the show notes for people who want to do that deep dive and, and get even more detail on everything we've covered so far. I want to move on to environmental impact of these oils because that's actually something I haven't spent as much time on. And I want people to understand what the environmental consequences are of this level of seed oil consumption. So th this would be the case with any food that's a, you know, a huge part of, of our diet. Um, there's going to be an environmental impact. Unfortunately, with seed oils, they are especially bad for the environment. So they're you know, and when you take into account that they don't do our, our health any favors, you know, if, if they made us live an extra 20 years or something, maybe we'd decide, okay, that, you know, th this is worth a little bit of rainforest because, you know, our, our IQ is doubled and we're living a lot longer or whatever. Um, but, but to have this environmental impact for a food that harms our health just doesn't make any sense. And so, so what is that environmental impact? Right, right now, the way seed oils are grown is um, we, we look for the, the area of the, the planet where the soil is most rich, where plants grow best. And that often is in the rainforest or in grasslands where, you know, grasses grow very quickly. And so we'll, you know, we'll clear out a natural ecosystem. 
um, plant seeds, wait six months for those seeds to grow, and then take those tiny seeds and press them for an even tinier amount of oil. And it's not like we developed um, seed oils because they were the most productive way to, to grow edible oil. They were produced as initially as a byproduct of animal feed. You know, animals are really good at producing fats naturally. Plants are not. Plants are good at making carbohydrates and sugar. But when we're using plants as our source of oil or as our source of fat, we just need a lot of land. Um, and, and so much of the, much of the rainforest in Borneo, for example, and, and, you know, now in the Amazon is dedicated to, uh, to soybean oil and historically to palm oil. When we replace, you know, there's a big push to replace palm oil, uh, with, with other oils. But the problem is when we replace palm oil with something like canola, sunflower, soybean oil, we use even more land and we're, we're just destroying an ecosystem in, the, in a different part of the world, whether that's in. Uh, you know, Ukraine and Russia, where sunflower is grown, or Canada, where canola is grown, or um, the Amazon rainforest and much of the U.S., where soybean oil is grown. And so, the, these seed oil crops emit about five to twenty-five times more greenhouse gases per kilogram of food than than any other crop out there. You know, they're about a third of of croplands worldwide. Um, they're leading drivers of biodiversity loss, leading drivers of deforestation, and again, not doing our health any favors. So. Um, not a system that makes very much sense. No, and it's 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 all part of the entire industrial approach to agriculture and food production where there's little consideration of the inputs, the outputs, how it affects land, ecosystems, local communities, etc. It's it's a symptom of a bigger problem, but it's also a cause. So it's that vicious cycle that you talked about earlier. And you know, I don't I don't think I think a lot of people are maybe more aware of the health repercussions of seed oils, but you know, even for me, with I was you know somewhat aware of the environmental impact. But when I when we started talking about this, and I I you know did a deeper dive into the some of the studies on just how big the environmental impact is, it's it strikes me as that's as um, you know. <laughs> Another significant issue, it's, we have the public health issue that is posed by these oils, but we also have the significant environmental degradation that's happening as a result of them as well. Yeah, and both are important. I mean, like, what's the point of saving the planet if, you know, we're not going to be here to enjoy it because we're all too sick? Um, and and similarly, what's the point of, you know, preserving our health if there's no if there's no planet to enjoy it on? I mean, both are important and it's an interwoven problem. If we just took into account the cost of the negative externalities, the externalities from our food system, that would solve a lot of problems because all of a sudden seed oils wouldn't be so expensive or wouldn't be so cheap. They'd be extremely expensive. Um, I, you know, I actually, I actually looked into this and it's, it's kind of a, um, a crazy stat. So soybean oil alone is like 60% of all seed oils in the US. You know, we spend twice as much as healthcare as we do on food in this country. It's ridiculous. What percentage of our healthcare costs do you think are from soybean oil alone? Obviously, we don't know the answer to that, but let's just say it was 1%, right? The, the most prevalent oil that's 60% of 20% of our calories is soybean oil. Let's just say 1% of our healthcare costs were soybean oil. The cost of soybean oil would double if 1% of our healthcare costs was accounted for in the cost of soybean oil. So once we, you know, let's say it's 5% of healthcare costs, soybean oil would basically be unaffordable. Uh, I don't think this is going to happen anytime soon, but it's at least an interesting thought exercise to think about the true costs of our foods. Absolutely. It also speaks to a, a, another question, which is how do we get here? Uh, how did these foods 
become known as health foods. I mean, there's still like in, in, in my parents' generation, for example, you know, my parents being my parents have no longer believed this, <laughs> but um, plenty of people in their generation are still eating, you know, heart healthy. I'm doing air quotes here, consuming heart healthy vegetable oils and even margarine and things like that as an alternative to, you know, saturated fats and, and uh, coconut oil, avocado oil, et cetera. So, you know, this could be another three episodes going, you know, going through the full history here. And, and we've, you know, that's in my first book and second book to some extent, but uh, observational research early on was a big factor here in creating the illusion that these oils were more healthy for our heart in particular, cardiovascular disease was how this all got started. How did that happen? Yeah, that, that is where it all started. You've written about this. And um, Nina Teicholz has a book called The Big Fat Surprise, which also does a great job diving into all of this history and in intricate detail. So, you know, like we said, humans never consumed these oils in any meaningful quantity in the history of our evolution until the introduction of cottonseed oil in particular, um, which began as an, an, an adulterated product to infuse with lard um, to replace whale blubber you know, when whales were overhunted. Um, it also started primarily for industrial applications like um, machine lubrication. And then two brothers-in-law, Proctor and Gamble, uh, used cottonseed oil to make Crisco, which was a partially hydrogenated oil um, that, that created trans fats. And so Crisco was kind of a semi-solid, pure white, um, now I'm putting in air quotes, clean alternative to animal fats. And it, it pretty quickly swept the country. You know, there was a lot of... Um, anti-immigrant racist advertising around uh, animal fats, you know, being dirty and, and Crisco being clean. You know, you can go back and look at ads. It's, it's, um, it's pretty overt. And then when we transitioned away from more traditional forms of agriculture toward, you know, grain-fed, soy-fed, corn-fed animals, we, we started pressing these grains for oil. And, uh, and then later, you know, we went on to, to grow grains specifically for their oil. But yeah, cottonseed was detoxified, acutely detoxified, you know, still probably chronically toxic, but acutely detoxified, partially hydrogenated, turned into Crisco. Soybean oil and corn oil started to replace cottonseed oil. Procter & Gamble was, you know, making millions at this time, had a lot of sway, a lot of influence. Uh, everything, everything for them was about convincing the nation through, you know, through their work with the American Heart Association and other organizations that these oils were heart healthy. So what first put this in the, in the spotlight, the heart health of, of vegetable oils, so to speak, was President Eisenhower had a heart attack. And this was around the time that rates of heart disease were climbing in the early 1900s. No one really, you know, doctors didn't really even know what atherosclerosis was. It was very new. Um, the president having a heart attack put it into the, into the public conversation. And based on no randomized controlled trials, you know, uh, essentially the sway and conviction of a couple of researchers like Ansel Keys in their observational studies um, convinced the American Heart Association, and you know, eventually on the cover of Time Magazine and Eisenhower's doctors, the best thing he could do was to consume more corn oil and soybean oil. And so he went on a low-fat diet, but the oil, the fat he did eat, was primarily from corn oil. You know, he eventually did succumb to, to heart disease and died of um, of a heart attack. But that kind of stuck. And so for decades, through you know a lot of work of organizations that had a lot to gain by considering vegetable oils heart healthy. Everything related to polyunsaturated fats, linoleic acid, that was good. Saturated fats were bad. Uh, you know, through the 1990s, 
even if you just replace the saturated fat with uh, corn oil, canola oil, sugar, candy, and snack oil cookies, that was considered good for you and heart healthy and you're making healthy decisions. Meanwhile, rates of disease and obesity and, and um, you know, diabetes and everything else is, is on the rise and skyrocketing. Um, we eventually, uh, you know, as a nation, replaced beef tallow in our deep fryers with trans fats. We learned that was horrible. So then trans fats were replaced by vegetable oils. And now we're just left with a bunch of these seed oils that you know, aren't very good for cooking, don't taste especially good, aren't good for the environment, are really bad for us, but yet are somehow in everything, largely because they're just, there hasn't been a really good alternative. Absolutely. It's a really fascinating story. Um, Big Fat Surprise is an, is an, it does an incredible job of laying it all out and how, how economics, you know, profit, politics, uh, confirmation bias, confounding factors in observational research, marketing and advertising, uh, groupthink, and so many other human factors contributed, you know, came together to uh, essentially steer the course of dietary recommendations in the U.S. for more than half a century, and even still to this day um, are, are affecting dietary recommendations. So, you know, really worth looking into to, to, to understand how we came to this moment in time. But I, I now I want to move on because um, we're, we're coming up on the top of the hour here um, and talk about what you're doing to solve this problem uh, at Zero Acre Farms. And just full disclosure here for everybody listening, I joined the advisory board of Zero Acre Farms because I deeply believe in their mission. Uh, as we've talked about, this has been one of the biggest issues of my career in terms of, uh, you know, public health problems that I've tried to address and raise awareness on. And when I learned, you know, Jeff approached me and told me what they were up to, I immediately jumped at the opportunity to become involved because if we can make progress on this one issue, it will have a dramatic impact on global health. Yeah, not just here in the U.S., of course, but everywhere in the world. So, yeah, maybe tell us a little bit about you know, just an overview of your, your mission at Zero Acre Farms. And then we'll talk a little bit about the first product, Cultured Oil. That sounds great. Um, and so I appreciate you being an advisor, Chris. And, and part of the reason that we started Zero Acre Farms was because, you know, we're not, we're not very good at politics. Um, our team is, is good at fermentation. And, um, you know, at, at, I've been a, in business and starting ventures my whole career. One of our other advisors um, was part of the USDA Dietary Guideline Committee. And he said that whole committee and the decisions they came to was about 90% politics and 10% science. And so it's just not enough to, and it's not what I want to do to like lobby and just try to get out the best research possible. Cause at the end of the day, it comes down to, you know, what's happening in a closed room with a small group of people and the political relationships and who has what to gain and group think and everything else you described. So uh, yeah, so at, at Zero Acre Farms, our whole mission is to figure out how to displace and remove these destructive vegetable oils in the in the food system. We, we say we want to give the world an oil change. Like we talked about earlier in the podcast, if everyone just stopped eating vegetable oils altogether, that would be great. That would be one solution. Um, the approach we're taking is for folks who still want to have you know salad dressings and the occasional French fries and potato chips and basically how most people are getting most of their calories these days at least offer something that doesn't do so much harm. And that's, that's good for you and not bad for you. That's good for the planet, not bad for the planet. So, so yeah, that, that's our mission is how do we create products that displace vegetable oils with something that is much, much better. Amazing. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's hard to think of from a dietary perspective of a mission that's 
more important. There are several that are probably up there, but this is really critical issue. The, the cultured oil, let's talk about this. So um, this is your first product and I would love it if you could just explain to people what it is and, and you know, maybe in a little more depth than you might normally, because as you know, my audience is pretty savvy and educated. Uh, and this is a question that we get a lot. You know, when I've talked to people about culture oil, they're like, I, I say it's, you know, it's a fermented oil. It's high in, in monounsaturated fat, low in omega-6 fat. And they're like, yeah, but what is it? <laughs> yeah. How is it? How is it really made? What is it? And, and that's fair. You know, like I'm, I was, when you reached out to me, I asked you the same question. I asked for a lot of detail in terms of how is this actually made? Because, we don't want to be in a situation where we're turning to the uh, beyond meat or impossible burger of, of oils, right? Um, and I think that's what people are scared of when they don't understand something. So it would be great if you could just explain how this actually works. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll preface with a couple of comments. One, describing what this is, we knew was going to be difficult because there's no word for it. It's like describing what yogurt is to someone without the word yogurt. And describing, you know, a, a thick, tangy culture of fermented milk sugars, um, or describing beer before you have the word beer. Most people don't actually know what beer is, that it's, you know, these microbial communities that ferment sugars and barley combined with uh, hops to produce this carbon dioxide rich alcoholic beverage. Um, yeah, and they don't want to think about that either. <laughs> right, right. It's, it's... So, yeah. So, I mean, which is good news, bad news, right? The good news is you've created an entirely new category of oils. The bad news is that's difficult to communicate. Yeah. I, I always say our, our greatest opportunity is also our greatest challenge, which is describing how uh, this, this new category of cultured oil is so much better, but also so much different. And, and then the other thing I wanted to preface with is there's nothing new in cultured oil. So, you know, unlike trans fats or, uh, you know, partially hydrogenated oils or Olestra from the 1990s, if anyone remembers that, th there's no new compound that we're consuming where we're trying to like trick our body to, um, you know, consume something that humans have never before consumed. Cultured oil is made as this, uh, made of the same healthy fats that are in every other food. It just has more of the good fats, like monounsaturated fat, um, more than 90% and way fewer of the fats that have been linked to inflammation, like omega-6 linoleic acid. So less than 3% linoleic acid in, in cultured oil. And then the rest is saturated fat, like stearic acid and palmitic acid. You can scan the back of your bottle and you can see the detailed fatty acid profile of your bottle of cultured oil. Um, we also show you detailed analytics. So you can see the peroxide value and free fatty acids and, um, and the, the antioxidant content, a number of other measures. So you actually know what you're consuming. So with that said, here's, here's what cultured oil is. Cultured oil is cooking oil, edible oil, um, that's full of all these fats that I just described that's made by fermentation. What does fermentation mean? Uh, this is kind of a term like antioxidants where you hear it and you're like, yeah, that's good. But maybe like 1% of people could actually describe what's happening, you know, on a molecular level in the case of antioxidants or fermentation. So what fermentation describes in food is when a microbial community, also called a culture, consumes natural sugars, those sugars can come from plants like barley and grapes. They can come from animal products like milk. And this culture, whether it's a sourdough culture or a wine culture, consumes these sugars and produces an entirely new food. So in the case of um, you know, a sourdough starter or culture, they consume the sugars in bread and they convert it to carbon dioxide that leavens the bread and you know, creates an amazing sourdough. In the case of beer, a beer culture consumes the sugars in barley and produces ethanol or alcohol and carbon dioxide 
and that gives us beer. In the case of an oil culture, microorganisms in the culture consume sugar and they convert that sugar into oil. This particular culture that produces cultured oil happens to make oil that's really rich in monounsaturated fat, very low in linoleic acid, uh, and, and it tastes pretty good too. Uh, and, and that's all it is. It's microorganisms converting sugar into oil. That's super helpful because I think at least most people listening to this podcast, although they might not understand the, the biochemistry of fermentation and culturing, they, they almost certainly are eating fermented foods or cultured foods to some extent, and they understand the health benefits and they understand how that is a, a useful process that humans have harnessed for thousands of generations as a means of storing food, making the nutrients in food more accessible, increasing the, the probiotic content of foods, uh, which of course they didn't understand, you know, in a scientific way when they were doing that, but they, they recognized that there were health benefits to consuming those foods. Virtually every culture in the world consumes fermented foods in some form or another, fermented beverages, beet kvass and, you know, Eastern Europe, kefir, yogurt, sauerkraut, kimchi, uh, and then all of the alcoholic ferments, as you talked about, cheese, et cetera. So, I mean, the list goes on and on. And this is what I love about this product is that you're harnessing a, a natural process, a process that occurs in nature, but applying technology to it to make it more scalable so that we can get to the point where we're producing a meaningful amount of these oils. And it's the organisms themselves that are producing the fatty acids that you find in the oil. And, and let's just talk a little bit about the, the, the fatty acid profile and why that's important because most people are using these oils to cook with, right? Yes, of course, you sometimes you're putting them on salad or some, something like that, but the, the majority of the oil use is, is to cook foods. And that can happen at uh, you know modest temperatures, like you mentioned, 300, 350, baking, et cetera, but also... A lot of people are stir frying, frying, you know, cooking in a, in a pan at higher heat or, you know, brushing oil on meat and putting or vegetables and putting that on a, on a grill at high heat. Monounsaturated fat is the, um, the most stable oil with the highest smoke point. So talk a little bit about the smoke point of cultured oil relative to other commonly used cooking oils and why that's so important. So as, as you know, Chris, there are kind of two components when you're looking at, uh, should I use this oil for cooking? Uh, smoke points, a big component, you know, you don't want to be breathing in all the acrolein and, and other compounds that are produced when you, you know, cook the heck out of an oil. And just from a practical standpoint, like you don't want to smoke up your kitchen and, you know, trigger the smoke alarm. And well, have yeah, your I mean, I, I just and... did a, I just did a video. I don't know if it's out yet, but it's going to be soon on indoor air pollution and how big mm. of a factor that is to human health and the volatile organic compounds that are produced from combustion of cooking oils and, and how those can linger and actually affect our health. So it is, a, it is an issue, not just a aesthetic issue. It's a health issue yeah. as well. Yeah. And it, it's actually the number one cause of lung cancer in non-smoking Chinese women is, yeah. is inhaling primarily soybean oil fumes from, you know, cooking at high heat in a stir fry walk. Um, so, so yeah, that, that's one aspect smoke point. That's important. Um, another aspect is oxidative stability, which is not just the, you know, physically what you're seeing and is this oil smoking, but what's happening on a molecular level, on an atomic level, is this oil oxidizing? And chemists that study oil all day, uh, they, they actually have kind of a back of the napkin test to see how stable an oil is, where they assign, they assign a certain number to each percentage of saturated, monounsaturated, and polyunsaturated fat. 
So they assign uh, zero to each percentage of saturated fat, one to each percentage of monounsaturated fat, and 12 to 25 for each percentage of polyunsaturated fat. The lower the number, the more stable. So saturated fats are the most stable, but are of course not oils. They're solid at room temperature. Monounsaturated fats are just about as stable as saturated fats, and polyunsaturated fats are just off, off the charts unstable. Yeah. Not even close. So uh, you know, exponentially more unstable. So every percentage of polyunsaturated fat or you know, primarily linoleic acid reduction in your cooking oil is going to pay dividends when it comes to how much oxidation is being produced. And so this all sounded good in theory. Um, we put cultured oil to the test and we compared it to a number of other oils, including olive oil, avocado oil, as well as uh, I think it was soybean oil, canola and sunflower oil or corn oil, and put them in a frying pan and, and started cooking them. Not, not us personally, it was a, a third party um, yeah. experiment. And after 10 minutes, every other oil had produced oxidative uh, products. We were specifically measuring that those PUFA derived aldehydes, uh, like, you know, formaldehyde, um, it's what's in cigarettes, it's, it's what is in these, these toxic, um, you know, fumes is what happens. It's what is formed in our body. When we consume these oils, we do not want these things. Um, aldehydes include like four HNE four hydroxy known and all, which is a, you know, well-recognized toxin. Um, so 10 minutes of cooking, everything had these, these PUFA derived aldehydes in them, except cultured oil. There, there was no detectable toxic aldehyde generation, uh, un unlike these other oils. And then after about 90 minutes of cooking, you know, just kept it going. Olive oil and avocado oil had the least except for cultured oil, which had six times less than avocado oil and 11 times less than olive oil of, of these PUFA derived aldehydes. And then sunflower, canola, soybean oil, they were, you know, off the charts, like 20, 30, 40 times as much. Um, so, you know, you can measure the effect of having a more stable cooking oil. You can notice it when it's not smoking in your frying pan. And that's really important for what's happening inside your body as well. That's really fascinating and really something that I think most people are not paying a lot of attention to, and it's an area where there's a lot of room for improvement. Let's just put it that way. Uh, let's let's talk about you know one of the I don't know objections or one of the potential objections. Someone say might say like, okay, well, avocado oil is high in monounsaturated fat. Olive oil is as well, though not as high, and but it has a lot of antioxidant value that can you know contribute to uh, making it a little bit less, uh, you know, more stable in an oxidative way than you would think based on the fatty acid profile. These are natural, I'm doing air quotes here, um, oils that everyone kind of understands intuitively where they come from. Avocado oil comes from avocados. You press them together and you get oil. Same, same thing with olive oil. So why not just make more of those? You know, why not just grow more avocados, more olives, and um, increase the amount of avocado and olive oil in the food supply. And how avocado oil is produced is the same way cultured oil is produced. Just instead of pressing an avocado, a an oil-rich culture is pressed. It's just a bit harder to visualize because it's happening on a microscopic level instead of a you know three-inch by two-inch level in the case of an avocado. Um, and certainly we're not in this mess you know, this chronic disease epidemic and because people consume too much extra virgin olive oil. But at the same time, those oils, I don't think are going to be what gets us out of this mess. And you know, like the, the numbers we just talked about, they don't really hold up to high heat all that well. They just hold up a lot better than something like a sunflower oil or canola oil. And there's nothing about 
pressing the oil from these particular crops, olives and avocados that make them the perfect cooking oil. And, and they're not scalable, unfortunately. Uh, and, and this is the case with, with all oil crops. They only grow in certain regions of the world. So, you know, palm oil, coconut oil, macadamia nut oil, and a number of others, they only grow near the tropics. Um, in the case of olive oil and avocado oil, you know, they, they only grow in more temperate regions of the world. So even if you wanted to replace all the vegetable oil in the world with olive oil, it, there just wouldn't be enough land for it. Olive oil, unfortunately, olive oil in particular is one of the worst crops for the environment. It's just not nearly as prevalent as palm oil. So it doesn't make headlines quite as much, but it requires uh, hundreds of times more land to, to produce the same amount of oil as cultured oil, uh, hundreds of times more water. Olive oil is like the almond of the oil crop uh, world. It's a very thirsty crop. Again, this is fine for you know artisanal extra virgin olive oil, like you know, an olive tree in your Italian family's backyard that's been there for 100 years. That's very different than the olive oil you go and buy from Costco that requires a ton of irrigation that may or may not actually be olive oil. Unfortunately, again, there's just been a history of adulteration in, in the olive oil industry. Now in the avocado oil, oil industry as well, a, a recent study found that 82% of avocado oil was rancid or adulterated and some were just pure soybean oil because no one's checking this stuff. And so if you're an avocado oil producer, why not do that? No, you know, no one was doing studies on this. And, you know, and, and again, linoleic acid, we're just getting so much of it. The more you can reduce your linoleic acid consumption, the better. And some avocado and olive oils have 20 plus percent linoleic acid, again, way better than the 75% in sunflower oil but nothing like the low single digit percentage in a coconut oil or beef tallow or, um, or, or, or cultured oil. Right. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's room for avocado oil and olive oil, I think in the diet avocados, whole avocados, whole olives. Um, these are all nutritious foods with different benefits, but what we're talking about here is it, I mean, there's more to it, but cooking oil is, is like a real focus I know for zero acre farms. And because that's the way that these oils are typically used in the industrial food supply. I mean, another thing that's interesting to me or that, that I like about cultured oil is that it has a, a very neutral flavor. There are often times where I'm cooking something and I want to really just emphasize the flavor of the food that I'm cooking. And, I don't want it to taste like the oil or fat that I'm using to, to cook it in particularly. There are some times where actually it, it is nice to have a little bit of an olive oil uh, taste, of course, but not, not all the time, right? And coconut oil is notorious for that, right? Like everything you cook in coconut oil is tastes like coconut. You know, the, the refined expeller press is a little bit better, different than the extra virgin, and it's more stable as well. But there are many situations where I just want to taste the food that I'm eating and not the oil that it's cooked in. And cultured oil has, I think, the most neutral flavor of any oil that I've ever used. Yeah, it, it that was certainly a goal and it is very neutral flavored. And if you're like us and you do, you know, spoonfuls and shot glasses of, of different oils to really taste it. Um, <laughs> and, and chef advisors of We're ours not also like do. You. I, I, at least <laughs> I'm not, I can say, I'm not doing any shots of oil lately. Yeah. Well, you, you're not in the oil business, yes. uh, but yeah, it, it's, it's neutral when you cook your food. If you, you know, if you have it straight up, which you don't need to do. Um, but if you're just curious, uh, it, it has like a lightly buttery taste, maybe nutty. Um, this is how chefs who have better palates than I do describe it. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I have friends that since, since we just launched, you know, bought a bottle of cultured oil and started cooking with it. 
And the the thing they said was that that they could actually taste their eggs. And um, my wife and I started, you know, frying frying our eggs in uh, in cultured oil instead of butter. And it is different. It's like, do I want my eggs to taste like coconut and ghee, or do I want them to taste like eggs? And yeah. sometimes, yeah, you might want your you know pad thai to taste like coconut. Other times, you want it to taste like you know the what like pad thai, like what you what you, what the actual ingredients are. So what we found is it tends to crisp food really well, uh, you know, better than uh, often than than other fats. And yeah, and and the flavor of the food you can actually taste. It's pretty cool. It's noticeable. Yeah, it's great. It, it I mean, it's it's exciting because it's like a whole for people who love to cook like me. Um, you don't come across a whole new oil, you know, with a whole different fatty acid profile every day. And it, it's opens up different possibilities and, you know, different, like you said, like, you know, Oh, my, my eggs taste different now, or I could, you know, roast these vegetables in this oil and they're going to have like a different texture. Just like, you know, I, I will often roast vegetables in duck fat, you know, where that's like a traditional way of doing it. And that, that has a very different texture than, roasting vegetables in olive oil, which tend to be more soggy and kind of wet, uh, which in turn is different than roasting them in ghee or coconut oil. So it's, it's great to have that, like a totally new culinary experience with a different type of oil like this. And to, of course, the most important part, knowing that in using this oil, when you're cooking, you're benefiting your health. Uh, you know, it's so much more beneficial to your health than using some pr pretty much just about any other oil that you might use. Uh, okay. So this has been fascinating. Uh, hope, hope that the listeners have learned a lot and are, are excited to try this out and, or just can get behind this mission because that's, what's really important here is the impact that this is going to have on the global burden of disease. And, um, that's, you know, I, I'm personally excited about having a, a new cooking oil at my disposal that is so healthy and good for the environment, but I'm as excited, even more excited about the impact that this is going to have worldwide on such an important public health issue. So uh, if you want to try it out, you can go to zeroacre.com slash Chris, and you get free shipping on your first order. Uh, I encourage you to try, you know, sauteing uh, foods in a pan with it, put it on vegetables. If you roast them, there are lots of different ways you, you can use it. And, and we did, you know, I didn't take any shots of it, Jeff, but of course, <laughs> when I got it, I did put a little in a little dish and, you know, uh, put some in my mouth just to kind of get a sense of the texture and the flavor. And I think that's a good idea. It'll give you ideas about how you might want to use it. So Jeff, thanks so much for joining me and spending the time to educate people on this really important issue and thanks for doing the work that you're doing at zero acre farms it truly is a you know potentially game-changing product and company and i'm really glad to be a part of it thank you chris thanks for having me on and thanks for everything you do you've been a huge influence on how we think about health and nutrition uh, as we're developing future products as well so really really appreciate everything you do and also like that uh lo love hearing that you're enjoying using cultured oil Great. Look forward to having you back in the future to talk about the, the next wave of products for Zero Acre Farms. And in the meantime, once again, zeroacrefarms.com slash Chris. Thanks for listening, everybody. Keep sending your questions to chriscresser.com slash podcast question. We'll see you next time. When I find a company that I love and I think you'll love, I do my best to support it and help it grow. 
Sometimes that means just getting the word out through my podcast, emails, and social media channels. And other times that means investing in the company or joining their advisory board. If you're hearing this message, it means that I'm either an investor or advisory board member of a company that is mentioned in this podcast episode. I only invest in or advise companies with a mission and products that I truly believe in. And I hope you benefit from learning more about them and how their products can improve your life. That's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash chriscresser or facebook.com slash chriscresserlac. I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.